This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett, and I'm joined here remotely by lightning protection expert, Alan Hall. Alan, how are you? Great, Dan. Another busy week. A lot of things in the news. What do you What do you got at the top of the list? Well, so today in our episode, we're going to talk about uh, the patent dispute between GE and Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy. Um, there's some interesting news about new testing facilities potentially opening up in the future. Um, we're going to talk about a pretty interesting wind uh, prototype that could potentially handle typhoon winds. And lastly, we're going to talk a bunch about dino tails and their uh, inspiration from the owl, which owls are just such awesome creatures. They're just amazing. But anyway, uh, dino tails are pretty interesting. They reduce uh, the noise and uh, of obviously turbine blades create a lot of noise. They're slicing through the air so fast. And if they reduce this noise, then they can potentially operate at higher speeds and still be in compliance with local law. So we'll chat a little bit about that. So yeah, it's been busy, Alan. How uh, how are things up there in Massachusetts? Uh, it's summertime. We're, we're uh trudging along. Uh, took a little ride up to uh, Vermont, uh, check out some of the wind turbine sites up there. There's, there's a number of wind turbine sites that have been added in the last five years, I'd say. Uh, so there's a lot of different varieties of wind turbines locally and, and obviously even across the United States, pretty much uh, within an hour's drive or so, you're going to be able to find wind turbines in the States. It's, it's a very active marketplace right now. What are the biggest sizes up by you? You see a pretty wide range. Or are they all pretty pretty steady? Uh, about forty-five meter, fifty meter blades is about be about the biggest we see up here. I I think that's a factor of uh, just the weather. The winter conditions tend to limit that, and and the the mountaintop rural locations that these get installed in. Yeah, gotcha. So speaking of uh, you know high market share in the U.S., GE, which is I think still number one, or they're they're getting maybe caught by Vestas in the US, uh, GE is defending their uh, one of their licensing agreements with other turbine companies. So they're in a dispute between Siemens Gamesa, and um, this looks like it's going to get a little bit testy. What's your take on the lawsuit between um, GE and Siemens Gamesa? Well, clearly GE has a patent, and it seems like Gamesa... Uh, at least in theory, I know both sides are going to dispute this, is in violation of that patent. So th- mm-hmm. the way this plays out is uh, wherever you have patent protection, you can defend that patent. And it's just make it real simple here. So if GE being a U.S.-based company uh, wants to enforce their patent on U.S. territory, that means Siemens Gamesa pretty much can't offer that technology in the United States. Or if they do, 
um, they can, you know, GE can go all the way and try to get some sort of embargo or uh, stop the shipments from happening and then impose fines, get to ask the, the federal government to impose fines, and it can get ugly fast, uh, especially when you got big players. And both both sides have attorneys, number, and I'm sure several attorneys' firms locked armies. up in this. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. they have armies of attorneys, unlike small businesses, which just can't afford that. GE and Siemens Gamesa totally can, so they can go to, to legal battle for a long time. The, the problem is, uh, at least in the United States, the companies have learned that if they bring the federal government, government in to uh, act on their behalf and to enforce these uh, patent rulings, that it puts a real financial strain on the other company. So you don't really have to win the argument. You just have to get the federal government to sort of back your side. And when you got a U.S.-based company and a international company coming together, well, you know how the U.S. is going to going to go on that. So it, it just creates these impediments to for business to happen, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to let those go on. The best for both sides is just to negotiate it and come to agreement. And somebody pays somebody else and move on. I think that's eventually where it's going to get to. But being in the sort of economic environment we're in, uh, th- that may not be as easy as it seems because that's the way it's mostly played out. If you've watched uh, Microsoft or some of these software companies get involved in lawsuits for patent infringement, Apple being another one, they can trudge on for years. And finally, they just involve the federal government and try to put the hammer down. That's where it starts to make a turn. So, GE could, GE could probably yeah. use a little bit of help right now, honestly, just because um, you know their stock price is so low and financial strain at their end. They're going to take this one to the mat, probably. Yeah, well, they say almost all of Siemens Gamesa's uh, U.S. turbines are in infringement, according to the complaint. So, yeah, they're going to take a good chunk of change off them if they can continue to get either royalties or, or whatever the agreement ends up being. So yeah. And G he's definitely hurting. Yeah. Yeah. If, if you happen to own those wind turbines in the States, you don't want to be in that situation where, uh, GE can in theory start finding you or shut you down. And that's just, a, that's just bad. It's, it's just bad for the, for the industry as a whole. You don't want to see, those two duke it out at the local level that that will be no fun for anybody so it's better resolved um across a conference room table somewhere but it doesn't seem like that's going to happen immediately at least reading the articles the recent articles about it yeah so let's let's shift a little bit obviously we've talked a bunch about testing and and lightning standards and lightning standards are pretty lax especially according to uh some companies like dnvgl who are pushing for you know more rigorous standards with which to certify things. But this article from Wind Power Engineering is talking about it. there's a new blade testing center uh, opened in 2017. And some of these older standards in 2014 are getting pretty outdated because blades have become just so huge in such a short period of time. I mean, even in six years, they've really grown. So what, I mean, you've done lightning testing extensively in the aerospace uh, industry. Yeah. What are the challenges behind getting a new up-to-date facility of this size? Well, they, they got a couple of problems. Uh, anytime you're trying to keep up with industry, uh, in terms of the, the, the size of anything, uh, in this particular case, as the wind turbines start to incorporate more and more carbon fiber, the strength of the carbon fiber allows the blades to get longer and longer and wider and wider. So from a structural standpoint, you need a facility to handle that. 
And that's hard to come by because those those facilities don't get used all that often. Uh, but when they need to get used, they need to get used, and they got to keep up with the current rate of technology. And the infrastructure investment is really left up to the local or state or federal governments uh, across the world to, to support this stuff because there's really no private investments going to be able to keep up with the rate of advancement that these blades are making. So on the lightning side, as we've seen uh, with some of the lightning test facilities around the world, as we've been testing longer and longer sections of blades, the facilities have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, in the United States, um, Lightning Technologies, which is now NTS, uh, several years ago built a fairly large high voltage test facility. But even now, that's still, you kind of press the limits there on its size where the blades continue to grow. Uh, Polytech over in Denmark has a very large lightning facility. But on the structure, structural side, you're testing essentially full-length blades, and you're trying to put mechanical stresses and sort of lifetime test these these blades by pulling, pushing, uh, twisting, trying to put uh, wind loads on them without actually wind loading them. So you got to create this mechanical yeah. environment where you can stress these things. Just imagine, so these blades are laying on their side, so you got to have just basically a huge amount of concrete and a, and a mount on one end, you can mount the blade up to horizontally, and then the blade's running across the facility. And then you got to hook actuators and hydraulic um, actuators that pull, twist, move in a manner that sim simulates uh, use on an actual wind turbine somewhere. That's not easy to do. It takes a lot of yeah. computer technology and a lot of engineering just to simulate those loads and to predict those loads and then to apply them uh, is just a whole nother level. But as this little article talks about, uh, what does it say, Dan? Is it one in 200 blades fail a year, like a half a percent? Uh, yeah, it's crazy. That's that's mm -hmm. a large number because there are a lot of wind turbine blades out in the world. Now, fail, as we were discussing earlier, fail can mean anything from fall off, hit the ground, to have some sort of uh, mechanical failure where the, the blade buckles or splits or something of the sort. So it doesn't necessarily mean necessarily huge catastrophic, but yeah. one in 200 is still expensive. Uh, so one, is that number really correct? And if it is correct, then the mechanical testing that happens at these facilities really needs to be, uh, ramped up, enforced, verified, validated. Cause one of, one of your biggest problems is you can predict what the outside world looks like mechanically, but you never really know until you get out there and you watch how some of the failures are occurring and then the engineers stumble around and try to figure out what has happened to these broken blades and then incorporate it into some sort of usually a company test standard, which gets applied at these test facilities. So it's like a constant control loop of uh, design the blade the best you can, do some testing on it, limited testing on it, make sure it doesn't really want to come apart, put it out in the field and watch it. And if it does come apart, then you get back in that loop again where you're coming back and trying to evaluate why that happened and how you're going to test it so you can validate the, the next series. So it's not the it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And every part of this is really, really expensive. Millions and millions and millions of dollars for these facilities. And it's just, it's just hard. No, no way we're getting around it. It's just hard. Well, and I guess as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking why don't some of the companies like the big players like the siemens gamesa the ge i mean is there a way for them to all sort of sort of share the burden and create an independent lab that they fund 
Um, you know, maybe they all back a, a major university like this was, you know, university in Denmark, but right. DTU. Why isn't there some collaborative uh, effort like there, that? There is, there is on some level. Um, like the state of Massachusetts, where I'm, where I'm at, has a wind turbine test facility, blade test facility uh, near the ocean. Actually, uh, they built that a couple of years ago, and I'm sure it's outdated already. But there's not a, a well, I guess in Rhode Island, there's a blade manufacturing facility, uh, TPIs down in Rhode Island. So somewhere close is a blade manufacturing facility. But yeah, you're going to need to have investment. And I think the way that the local governments, at least in the United States, look at it as if they put those facilities in their states to do the testing, that kind of means you need to be doing either engineering or engineering and manufacturing for blades in your state, like you make it a, a, a reasonable place to plant, to put your plant. Uh, so sometimes the, 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 the test facilities land first and then the, and to encourage the manufacturers to come there later. It's hard to make them pay for that up front, but you, you are making them pay for testing. There's no doubt about that. You know, the, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be take, occupying that facility for a hundred days. You're going to pay for a hundred days of, of test time and that will not be cheap, but if you can think about it, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think that those facilities are used 50% of the time, 70% of the time. Most lightning most lightning labs and, and structural test labs on, on smaller components are busy, but there's not always one. They're not, they're not 100% busy all the time. It's just, it's, just not, it's just not the way things work. All right, well, we're going to jump to our engineering segment. And first thing uh, on our docket today is the Enercon E115 EP3. So this is a, a wind turbine that just had its first successful installation um, in Belgium. And uh, this is interesting because they said it can take wind up to 89 meters per second, which is uh, about typhoon speeds. <laughs> yeah. And uh I mean, this seems pretty crazy. I mean, we, we talked about the Typhoon Turbine, which is literally called the Typhoon Turbine by a different company back in an earlier episode of the show. And uh, but this is like a pretty standard design. This isn't, you know, uh, this looks like a normal wind turbine. But what do you think uh, the technology is here that's going to help this withstand such high speed without breaking apart? I mean, what do they have to bolster? Tower, blades, nacelle. <laughs> Pad. Just, all, just all of it. Just, just all of it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it's going to be all of it because uh, that's one thing about any sort of strong winds. Like it's hurricane season in the United States, and so we're starting to have hurricanes pop up on the southern eastern southeastern coast. Is those winds swirl, right? So you really can't tell what direction they're going to come from necessarily, and you, you got to be able to take the just the total wind load on the towers and the blades and everything else and transfer that load into the into the ground and not have the whole thing just topple over. That's not easy to do. So probably every single component of the structure is going to have uh, enhancements to to withstand these things. More than likely, uh, this type of wind turbines obviously is just going to be used in select areas because it's going to cost more to make. It's going to take more manufacturing, more raw materials, more of everything uh, to to produce this wind turbine. So. It's going to have limited uses, but as we well know right right now, there's a lot of places along the United States and a lot of coastlines where uh, around the equator, whether in California, you name it, uh, there's just a lot of strong winds and really horrible weather. And if you're going to try to produce electric, clean electric energy, you're going to have to be able to make wind turbines that can tolerate that thing. So 
my question is, where do they test all this? How do yeah. they test it all? And how are they going to validate it? I, I think that would be the, mm-hmm. my biggest concern is, it's, is, it, is it proven technology? Is it something that they've developed over time and they had some test beds and they said, yeah, we, we've stuck it out in uh, the ocean and it did just great. And then we're going to extrapolate that out and, and continue on with this concept. I don't know. I, I kind of wonder how that how that's going to work, right? You got this really niche market and then you're trying to take it over, but there's got to be some confidence on the insurance side that we don't have an issue. I would think. Yeah, well, this is, and this is the prototype they, they're installing. So yep. this is, I think this is that moment where they're going to see, does this actually work? And as we've discussed with the, some of the floating stuff, where like, you just don't really know until it actually gets in a typhoon. Yeah. So I guess, I guess well, we'll see. Well, another thing too, Dan, I know in the United States, one of the issues for hurricanes is a lot of flying debris, right? That a lot of it, a lot of the damage that happens to homes, buildings, uh, vehicles is not so much... Uh, the winds, so to speak, but it's all the the houses that get broken up into wooden two by fours that are flying around at 100 miles an hour and getting shoved through cars and everything else and windows. That's really hard to to take. Have they thought? Obviously, the tower can probably take it because it's steel. But can the blades take that? Do they think they're going to have blades take damage of flying debris? Possibly. Possibly. All right, Alan. So let's talk a little bit about dino tails. So obviously this is actually, this is not the official term for this is a Siemens Gamesa's brand name um, for what's basically, I guess, doesn't seem to have a universal name in in the wind turbine industry, but it's trailing edge serrations or trailing edge feathering. Um, And this is sort of like one of a group of, uh, I guess, power curve upgrades. But can you take us through a little bit about what a dino tail or what a, a trailing edge serration does uh, to wind turbine blade? Sure. So when a wind turbine uh, flies, blade flies to the air, if you think about it this way, the and any sort of wing or blade, the, the air going over the top surface is moving faster than the, than the air on, on the flat bottom surface. So there's a high pressure on the bottom, there's low pressure on top, and those two uh, sheets of air meet on the trailing edge of the blade or wing. So you got this sort of faster moving air on top and the slow moving air on the bottom, and they have to come together. And when they come together, they create turbulence, and that turbulence you can actually hear. So it's the sound you hear hmm. when a wind turbine blade rotates through the sky. It's kind of that rustling noise, that, wisp, that wisping noise that you hear. Uh, so there's turbulence there. Anytime you have turbulence coming off a blade, either during the, in the span or on the tips, and the tips is where you kind of see it the most, is turbulence is drag, and uh, it's also noise. And if you are placing wind turbines in places where it's noise sensitive, it's close to a local town or, or city, and there's noise requirements, it's hard to make those wind turbines operate at full power without trying to put in some quieting devices on them. Well, these feathers are a one way of doing that. It, it takes the air on the top of the blade and the bottom of the blade, and it kind of mixes them together gently, much like uh, mm. a bird feather does. Right? Uh, owl, uh, the always example I hear all the time is owls, owl feathers. And when you watch an owl fly, if you're watching an owl fly at nighttime, you can't, you can't hear that thing fly. It's very, No very one quiet. sees them fly. Yeah, no oh. one sees them fly. They're like little ghosts. Well, no, you see an owl fly what? in real life? No, oh yeah. You see owls fly? Yeah, my backyard. Oh. <laughs> Okay. All the time. I feel like they're just such they're just such good elusive 
predators that you just you never know they're there and to actually see them take flight i feel like it's pretty rare you have to be in the right place right time uh and in the in our little neck of the woods there's a lot of little creatures running around in the grasses and the owls have really good eyesight too okay okay so yeah all right all right so i'm wrong but all right so so back to owls so are they the only birds i mean a lot of birds probably have this yes they do quote unquote they do you know technology natural selection that's helped them just fly quieter right right quieter or stealthy right and the little mouse doesn't Mm -hmm. hear you coming that's essentially it. Gotcha. Right? So it sounds like the main advantage here is just, I, I guess a lot of turbines are are essentially limited. Like they, they can't operate at full speed because otherwise they wouldn't comply with local noise That's right. um, regulations. So right. now this just allows them to take the limiter off and, and they get more power that way. It seems like a no brainer. So why, why, I mean, if you look around the web and you search for images of wind turbines, you don't see many. I mean, it's hard to find. A, it's hard to find a photo with these feathers on it. I mean, what's the prevalence look like right now? I mean, how how many of these are out there with these on it? Uh, well, Siemens Gamesa has been offering them, or Siemens in particular, has been offering it for a couple of years. What is happening now, as we talked about, as wind turbines age and the and the, the percentage drop off in power production occurs. What's happening is there's like a there's like a secondary market there to bring the blades back to better efficiency or higher efficiency as the age to basically recover some of that power output you lost. Yeah, you put some of these enhancements on, so you know, these power curve upgrades include the feathers on the back end, and, and the and the feathers can give you another maybe another percentage point back of, of power that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So. Uh, what's happening now is you see a lot of the manufacturers or companies like Polytech that are upgrading blades that are five, ten years old with feathers to improve their efficiency. That that's what's happening now. I don't really see a lot of this coming out of the factory like I like today. I really haven't seen a lot of them coming out of the factory. It seems like the the mm-hmm. energy production coming out of the factory is pretty good, and as the uh, operators watch that power curve as they do every day, uh, it, they'll see that gradual decline. At some point, it makes sense to make that upgrade. It's usually five to 10 years into the lifespan of the thing and then ride it out the, the remaining lifetime of the blades. So it, it makes sense. Uh, but you also kind of wonder if you put it on at year zero, how long they're going to last, right? So it may not it mm. may not last a full 20 years and maybe it's smarter to put it on at year seven, eight, nine, ten, something like that to get the remaining lifetime out of it. It's a cost benefit analysis and there's a lot of uh, good site management that has Excel spreadsheets that has calculated that and determined what the right time frame is in the lifetime of those blades. No doubt. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I've got a couple questions uh, that are lightning related. So obviously anytime you modify the aerodynamics of the blade, you're going to just affect the way it in, it interacts with the air and the environment and all that stuff. And that includes lightning. So um, being that you're our lightning protection expert, what do you see the implications of this being? Number one, is it going to change the location of strikes on the blade? Yes, no doubt. And we've already seen that. We've seen it from multiple reports over the last ooh, three, four years, uh, 2017, about the first time I saw some of this coming in. Yes, it does. Uh, if you think about it, no blade is clean. Right, so when you put these feathers on the on the back end, you got this basically bumpy uh, serrations at the trailing edge of the blade, mm-hmm. and they're made out of non-conductive things, nylon. It looks like it's a, a nylon, um, something you can ejection mold. So it is a non-conductive thing, and, and the thought process from 
watching this go on is that, well, I put a non-conductive thing on the back edge of the blade. It will have no effect on lightning protection. Er, wrong. Totally wrong. Because eventually those little feathers get dirty. And I don't know if you ever picked up a feather out of your yard, but realized and kind of fluffed it around. It's full of dust, right? So the that dust is somewhat conductive. And as you get debris and atmospheric junk on the blade and on those little feathers, they become somewhat conductive. Not highly conductive, but somewhat conductive. And what we have seen hmm. is uh, lightning uh, leaders and streamers originating off the edge of those uh, feathers, typically out of towards the outer tip, but off those feathers. And then, so it reaches out to the sky off the feathers and then it reaches back somewhere on the blade. And we were having lightning punctures to down conductors uh, near the near the, near the the feathers. And the receptor is another meter or two away further up the blade. So you're getting these punctures happening around where the feathers occur. And that was clearly not seen. Uh, or experienced or thought of until, you know, obviously it's been happening in the field. I, I know that some of the OEMs have looked at that and are trying to address it. And that, that's the right thing to do, right? You're getting feedback from the field saying, hey, we're having these weird lightning strikes and we're having damage to the blades in places we didn't envision. What can what can we do? You know, a lot of times, actually, they reach out to us and, and use a strike tape or lightning diverters to uh, basically take the receptor and let it reach down to where the feathers are. So if there's any electrical activity happening at the feathers, the strike tape captures it and, sh and brings it back to the receptor, thereby sparing damage to the blade. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of activity revolving around that because the, the enhancements, the, the performance enhancements because of the feathers, you still want to keep, but you just need to make sure you don't damage the blade from lightning strikes in the meantime. So uh, what would you do to modify the, the LPS, the lightning protection system, once dyno tails are installed? Because foreseeably you'd want to, all right, we're going to install these on our turbine. We would want to upgrade our LPS at the same time. Is right. that right? Yes, definitely. So uh, so you have, a little, you have a couple of things to deal with. On the larger blades where they have receptors on the trailing edge and you add on uh, feathers back there, that means you're going to be shoving lightning to those receptors through the feathers, and that's not always good because you can knock section. Those feathers come in sections; they can get glued on in sections, roughly a meter long section. You can start knocking off sections of feathers unless you're careful. Uh, what we have seen mostly, though, is lightning strikes occurring on the edge of the feathers, and then uh, just randomly puncturing the blade. Now, I, I think the the best thing we well, there's two things. It's puncturing the blade where the down conductor is, or better yet, it, it the lightning comes off the feathers and starts looking for the drain hole, and finds a drain hole, then blasts through the drain hole to get to the down conductor. So you kind of got, you got drain hole damage and damage way up in the blade. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's it's a problem. So the what we have suggested and are are implementing on a on a number of wind turbines. Um, this has happened across the world at this point. What they're doing is they're bringing strike tape lightning diverters from the receptors back towards the trailing edge, uh, trying to protect the drain hole. And it's been very, actually very effective at protecting the drain hole. So it's trying to catch the lightning strikes that originate at the feathers and trying to direct it around the drain hole and away from the down conductor inside. Really, it's been really effective. I've seen it tested uh, a couple of times now looks good it's simple because you don't have to do anything structurally to the blade besides basically peel and stick a couple of of strike tape diverters to it but the result has been really good lab tested and the results from the field indicate the same thing that uh we're seeing really good lightning protection where we have done that done that mod so to summarize uh obviously like 
the dino tails or, you know, the trailing edge feathers, trailing edge serrations, a pretty worthwhile upgrade. Mm. So especially if a, you know, wooden farm operator is ready to do some maintenance and they're up there, probably makes good sense to put those on. But if they do that, they're going to, they need to anticipate having some lightning troubles and they should probably upgrade their LPS at the same time, probably put new segmental lighting diverters on. um, And obviously like strike tape, you know, our product is the most durable. So that's going to last or outlast, you know, all those other upgrades there. So yeah. that seems like the, uh, the the long and the short of it. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it's also the relative cost here, right? So w- when you put the feathers on, there's a, there's a cost of buying the feathers, the cost of putting on the feathers. And then sort of as a secondary thought, like, Oh, what about the LPS? What am I supposed to do there? Uh, mm-hmm. We found that the, the strike tape addition to correct the, the feather issue is relatively to the cost of the feathers is minor. Uh, so you're up there already to put a couple of pieces of strike tape on takes really no time to do uh, versus the time you're taking to put the feathers on. So in terms of uh, overall cost to install some strike tape to to pr- help to protect the feathers from damaging the blade, it's, it's a minor cost. All right, well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.